0: So this idea of doing absence only and a very strict interpretation of the 12 steps and saying, okay, if somebody goes back to using, we've got to start over or else to come out of the program, doesn't add up anymore because now you're saying, okay, if somebody has a symptom of what they're being treated for, we look at that as a complete, utter failure. You wouldn't approach that with diabetes. You wouldn't approach that with heart disease. You wouldn't approach that with anything else.
1: You're listening to
0: Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, BetterHelp. You can grab a week free just by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych Calling into the show today, we have Dr. Michael Takach. Dr. Takach is the Chief Behavioral Health Officer for Infinity and a published researcher on addiction treatment and a subject matter expert for the Wisconsin Governor's Task Force on Opiate Abuse. Dr. Takach, welcome to the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Very happy to be here.
1: Addiction and addiction treatment is one of those things that does seem to be openly talked about. However, there's a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings, and still debate on exactly what addiction is, what addiction treatment looks like. And typically, when people think of addiction treatment, the first thing that comes to mind is the 12-step model and abstinence-only recovery. Is this still the best approach for the treatment of addiction?
0: There's a really interesting history that goes along with this, that contributes to how this works and why people immediately jump to the 12 steps. When we go back to when psychology was a budding field back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was kind of a loss of what to do with addiction. So a lot of treatments involved having people in their confined spaces, restrained areas, and really just hoping that the addiction over time went away. And what ended up happening was there was a lot of community and faith-based organizations that went ahead and tried to find other approaches to help address addiction within the community. And this is where 12 Steps and a couple of other movements started coming out from. And then somewhere in the, in the mid-1900s, you see the introduction of the Minnesota model, which starts incorporating these 12-step approaches into treatment. And what happens is you get this parallel track where you have medical and psychological treatments on one side and on another track you've got the the 12 steps abstinence only process that's going now 12 step abstinence only process has helped a lot of people and now that they're trying to look at how to combine those with actual medical science and psychology you see that there's some conflicting evidence there there's some conflicting Uh, approaches. So a lot of people have moved away from a very strict interpretation of the 12 steps and using that abstinence only approach. Part of it has really been because of the way that we start conceptualizing addiction and what's actually going on with it. Uh, If you look at this from a treatment point of view and think of addiction as a disease or any other type of Set of symptoms to address, you start looking at the idea of the actual expression of addiction as a symptom of other things that are going on, either neurologically, biologically, um, as a confluence of a lot of different stressors that are happening. The actual act of using is an expression of a symptom. And so this idea of doing abstinence only and a very strict interpretation of the 12 steps and saying, okay, if somebody goes back to using, we've got to start over or else to come out of the program, doesn't add up anymore because now you're saying, okay, if somebody has a symptom of what they're being treated for, We look at that as a complete utter failure. You wouldn't approach that with diabetes. You wouldn't approach that with heart disease. You wouldn't approach that with anything else. Instead, you'd say, okay, we need to really just look at our treatment methodologies and say, is it working? Um, Is it expected that you would sometimes see symptoms flare up? And if so, then how do you manage that? And what are the best approaches?
1: The common phrase that I hear in addiction recovery is that relapse is part of recovery, which lends itself to your abstinence only is, is not necessarily the, the best method. We need to be mindful of it. So it it seems like folks have left some space for it. The second follow-up question that I have based on what you just said is where you said about the medication assisted. A lot of folks believe that if you're on any sort of medication, you are not abstinent and therefore you're not in recovery. I'm going to go ahead and I'm
0: going to address that second one first because that's a really pressing one. And when we start looking at this, a lot of this starts based off of what the foundation of the 12 steps came from, which is the big book. And within it, there is some notes about abstinence only, but there's also some key phrases about how medication prescribed from the doctor should be okay. when you start interpreting that, you can get people that interpret it different ways. And what you brought up right there, where some people are saying, if you're on any type of medication, you're not abstinent, is some people's interpretation of that. I ran into this a lot working in the field where you would get either support groups in the community or different types of sober homes where people are trying to reestablish themselves away from their home environment where they were being kicked out of or treated differently if they were on any type of medications. There was a strong bias in the community about that. And typically, when we think of different types of medications, a lot of times we automatically jump to thinking about things like methadone or Suboxone or any of those types of medications. But what actually, we're seeing in the community was that it was also antidepressants and other things that would typically seem less controversial were being treated by some people as being you know, not sober. And there had to be a lot of work done, and there still does have to be a lot of work done to address that and to combat that. Because for some people, medications are an essential part of their treatment. There are multiple different paths to treatment. And so to have a mentality or have any type of approach out there that says you can't take medications as prescribed, frankly, can be kind of dangerous and may sometimes be against someone's best interest in their recovery.
1: And then to address the relapse as part of recovery, because it does seem like they have some acknowledgement that that abstinence isn't, I, I don't want to say not possible, but that phrase does exist for a reason and for a good reason, I think. Absolutely.
0: Let's look at it similar to other types of any type of disease or health health situation that we're trying to address. Like you know, if somebody has a diabetes or somebody has a heart condition, there are going to be times where people default to past behavior. Changing behaviors can be really difficult. I always say if change was easy, there wouldn't be a profession of psychology. You wouldn't need it. And so when you start thinking about addiction, you're trying to change behaviors and to set up expectation that somebody is not going to have any type of symptom expression during that treatment process is an unrealistic expectation to set. I don't think it's in the patient's best interest to go ahead and approach it from a way that once those symptoms show up that it's indicative that there is some type of failure on their behalf of them engaging in treatment. Instead, you want to bring the person in and say, okay, if this happens, these are the steps you take to get back on track. When there is that mentality that I I must not relapse, I can't relapse, you know, if I go back to using, all of these negative things will be associated with me, I'll feel really bad, and I'll have quote unquote failed my treatment. If that mentality is there, then it tends to create this atmosphere where people become embarrassed or ashamed and they want to hide those symptoms that otherwise could have been kind of the markers that let you know, like, hey, we should do something here. And instead, what tends to happen is people hide that, and then they have a return to use episode, then they're addressing it after the fact rather than saying, okay, we could have maybe identified some things beforehand that could have helped prevent this.
1: I'm fairly certain that I know the answer to this question, but what are your thoughts on medication-assisted treatment?
0: I think that when used effectively, it can be extremely beneficial for patients under the right circumstances and with the right type of support. Medication-assisted treatment does not mean that the medication substitutes other types of treatment. It's used as an adjunctive therapy to help support the other types of treatments that people are going through rather than a replacement. That's a key part. It's not just we're going to give these medications and there you go, good luck. There has to be that other type of programming around that or support around that to help ensure that a success. The other thing with medication assisted treatment is that it's extremely effective when it's used. Those medications save lives and can be an extremely important aspect of treatment when looking at addiction, especially when looking at something like opioid addiction where the risk for deaths related to overdose or return to use can be so high.
1: From the outside looking in, it always seems like these two approaches are mutually exclusive. That's really the debate that I'm seeing. You are either using medication-assisted treatment for addiction recovery or you're using peer support therapy for addiction recovery. There, there doesn't seem to be this concept that you can utilize both.
0: Like with anything, you look at some people who are very passionate about their beliefs and the people that are very passionate about it tend to speak the loudest, and this is where you start getting some aspects of care that becomes politicized. There's a similar debate that tends to happen between this idea of abstinence only and an approach called harm reduction. And harm reduction came out of public health approaches, um, and it started as different ways to look at how do you reduce the most harmful behaviors in a community so that you get overall better public health. So this is where like safe needle exchanges came in and other types of approaches within psychology. What happened is people said, okay, what can we do to help reduce the highest risk behaviors and help move towards better overall health? This is where you get people that are addiction from the point of, you know, if somebody is using one substance that has a higher lethality and risk for death, but they're also using another substance that might not be as dangerous you know, do you focus on the higher lethality one, the more risky one first, and maybe address the other one later versus trying to address everything all at once? Or if you get somebody that's drinking a lot, can you get them to reduce the amount of alcohol that they're consuming and start moving a little bit more towards moderation or towards a place where they're not using in a way that is causing problems? There have been advocates on both sides that have been very vocal and that really present this either or mentality and as people we're drawn towards the either or we love our dichotomies we like to think of things as either right or wrong or you know if we're on one side or the other of of a topic but when you actually think about treatment you actually say okay as a clinician as somebody working with patients how do i deal with this individual patient and often that answer is that it's either a combination or somewhere in the middle in that gray area, which isn't as easy to communicate, isn't as easy to go ahead and have big debates about where you say, yeah, we're somewhere in the middle. Instead, you, you tend to get more attention drawn to people that are on the, the ends or the extremes with it. So I think there is room for a hybrid. There is room for kind of thinking about this as a spectrum and, and thinking about what's appropriate for that patient rather than being so strictly on one camp or the other. I think we actually do a disservice to the treatment field when we try to force a dichotomy on this where people have to be either or.
1: When we think we'll be back in a minute after a word from our sponsors. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know managing my mental health and a busy recording schedule seemed impossible until I found BetterHelp Online Therapy. They can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Just visit betterhelp.com/psychcentral to save 10% and get a week free. That's betterhelp.com/psychcentral. Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And we're back discussing new thoughts on addiction recovery with Dr. Michael Takach. When we think of all the discussions that are happening all around society and on the internet, they, they seem to be people living with addiction or their friends and family. What's the medical perspective on this conversation? What would you as a doctor like to see the conversation be? What do you think that we are missing as a society to help people reach recovery better? Because more often than not, I know there's a lot of emotion in these discussions. And emotions aren't necessarily the best way to get to the the, the right decisions.
0: There's a lot of
1: passion with this.
0: And part of it is fear. Part of it is anger. Part of it is just also the dominant culture tends to portray addiction in certain ways. There's been movements to either vilify it or make it moral failings with that comes a lot of emotion, a lot of feelings, a lot of shame, a lot of anger, a lot of blaming and and whatnot. And that's done a lot of damage towards thinking about how do we actually address addiction as it presents? And instead we start thinking about how to tailor towards those emotions and those strong opinions. And when we think about what is best for moving treatment forward, it is thinking about how do we go ahead and address this in a way that's supported by research how do we address addiction in a way that's supported by looking at best practices and thinking about individualizing care and making sure that we're not being too reductionistic and too sweeping because that's the other thing is that when people get very passionate about their approaches it can come off sometimes that their approach is the approach for everybody rather than this approach was really impactful for me and therefore I feel really strongly connected to it. It can sometimes move from that to this is the approach that I felt was best and everybody should then feel the same way. That doesn't help move science forward. You should always be looking at any type of treatment with a critical eye rather than saying, okay, I'm satisfied with this, let's sit back and just enjoy it. You should always be looking for how do you continue to advance it that requires being able to step away from the emotional investment in it be critical of a of an approach and say these are the results we have so far but how do we continue to move forward with addiction it can be one of those areas where people tend to have a stronger emotional connection to because a lot of times going through recovery or when people aren't successful in going through recovery those tend to elicit really strong emotional
1: responses. It's an interesting quandary we have in addiction recovery because we need a sense of community. And the easiest way to build that community is generally our friends and family. But in in addiction, there's a lot of people that get hurt uh, around the person who has the addiction. And those are generally the friends and family do you think that sometimes it's wise for the friends and family to step back and to, for the person with the addiction to get help from other people?
0: The family themselves, if they're going through a situation where somebody has addiction and are going through treatment, more often than not, there tends to be strains in those relationships. We can look at it where if somebody's going through a situation where a family member has cancer, or other types of chronic or terminal diseases, we can say, oh, that makes sense that we're gonna say that family should seek support and have support. It's not as common for people to make that connection when they start thinking about how do I look at a family that's that's addressing symptoms of addiction we really want to change that mentality. And there are things like Al-Anon and other types of programs out there, but also as a field, we're just starting to think clinically from a point of view of how do you actually provide more strategic and structured care to those family members. And I think that's essential because those people that can have a major influence on the recovery process of the individual who's going through treatment themselves. And We know just in general, in mental health, social support is one of the key factors that actually helps determine outcomes for pretty much any symptom expression, any type of diagnosis. Their recovery is gonna be predicated on what's the quality of their social support? How much social support do they have? And where are they getting it from? That doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't have good social support, they're not gonna get better. We just know that social support plays a key role and is a large influence on any type of recovery or treatment. Second, when we start looking at the communities, and this is something um, that I've I've written about before and published on before, is that one of the things that happens is that people start looking at self-identity. It can be extremely helpful for somebody to either step outside their normal support group, step outside their family, and get support from a 12-step group or any other type of community support. That can be extremely helpful. What can sometimes become problematic is when it starts creating these in-group, out-group associations. If you're in recovery, if you're in sobriety, if you're in my community group, I can associate with you. If you're not, I can't. So saying, I identify with these other individuals and they're my people and they're my support can be extremely supportive at first. It can also create later difficulties and saying, okay, how do I go ahead and expand my support? And one of the things that I always recommend is, is that we look at how do we not narrow somebody's sources of support? Instead, how do we expand them? So if we suddenly say only people in recovery can be support Now we've gone ahead and eliminated a vast majority of people that are most likely in that individual's life that could potentially be very great supports from being even considered or looked at. We also don't want people to say, well, I've got support here, I've got support there, so I don't need the actual other types of treatment. When you look at it, when we're trying to help somebody address something like addiction, the more support you have and the more different resources, including You know, if we're thinking about medication or if you're thinking about therapy or thinking about community groups or you're thinking about a supportive family, the more of those things that you can put together as appropriate, the better chances somebody will have for success with whatever they're looking for with their treatment goals. What you you hit upon was really key there, Gabe, is that it's how do you bring all of this together rather than trying to get to an either or or one or the other type situation?
1: it's difficult to find that middle road, uh, on addiction. You get Mm -hmm. a lot of people that want to talk about, uh, sort of the extremes, which, which sort of provided the basis for a couple of my questions. We get a lot of pitches about how medication is not addiction recovery and how we need to stop. And we get a lot of pitches for addiction isn't a mental illness but it's not like this nuanced debate of where it fits. It's you're either an addict or you're mentally ill. And, and that's so frustrating because it's like saying you either have cancer or diabetes. No comorbidity exists. And to pretend that it doesn't does a disservice to people who are suffering. Uh, so we can't have them on the show.
0: <laughs> I think that's one of the things that you run into is that once people start thinking about it that way, there tends to be this chicken or the egg approach. Like, well, they're just using substances because they've got mental health or because they got depression. And if that goes away, then that solves everything. And the, the way that we're moving as a field, and the way that you really have to think about it is that any type of diagnosis or whatever is just a collection of symptoms that tend to statistically more often than not appear together. Our concept of any type of diagnosis is just we've gone ahead and drew arbitrary lines around these symptoms, especially mental health and whatnot, saying these bend together more often than not. And when we see them, we'll call them depression. We'll call them anxiety. Um, It's the reason the DSM gets redone all the time, is because it's not a sound construct the same way that we could say you know, this bacteria or this virus is present, so therefore it's COVID or anything like that, it's not as straightforward as that. You're not doing a blood trial and saying, oh, this virus is present, therefore it's depression. Instead, we're working with these abstract concepts of when we have constellations of symptoms called syndromes, and we're labeling those as diagnoses, and then using those arbitrary collections to then guide treatment it's fascinating, but it's a, it's a process of statistics. And we do it a service when we start saying you can have one or not the other, because really we're saying you can have this symptom, but you can't have that symptom. Biologically and psychologically, it, it doesn't work that way. We don't get to dictate which symptoms people experience.
1: And I can only imagine how infuriating or frustrating or sad. It would be for the person who is experiencing both of those symptoms to be told, no, 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 this one's important and we're not even going to acknowledge that this one exists. It's this self-imposed barrier or a societal imposed barrier or a culturally imposed barrier to getting care. And uh, Again, that's got to hit like a ton of bricks. We care that you're suffering in this area, but we don't care that you're suffering over here. And in the meantime, it's the same person.
0: Absolutely, there's a diagnostic overshadowing that tends to happen with people with clinicians. It's the same thing we've talked about. We like our patterns. We like our um, different ways that we engage and we approach things. If a clinician is used to treating a certain type of diagnosis, they're more likely to see that diagnosis and other individuals that they're treating. And sometimes we'll be biased and start ignoring other types of symptoms to make it fit that mold. And you have to really hedge against that as a clinician to stay effective. You don't want that diagnostic overshadowing to happen where it it starts guiding what you're seeing because that exact experience happens. You you have somebody present, they're saying, I'm having this symptom, I'm having this symptom, I'm having this symptom. If you have a clinician that's approaching it and saying, well, I'm going to acknowledge these, but you know, either that's not my area of expertise, or I don't believe in that, or this conflicts with something with my, you know, the way that I conceptualize stuff. If they're throwing that data out, if they're throwing those symptoms out, you're dismissing a part of that individual. And you're saying, I will accept you as a patient, but only this part of you. And that's so invalidating as a a patient that that creates so many barriers to care. I, I don't know that as a patient, I or or many people would wanna engage in treatment when they're being told that. I'll treat part of you, but the rest of it, I'm gonna say, eh, it's either a lost cause or I don't acknowledge it or it's not important. It's not the way that we create treatment alignment. It's not the way that we create engagement. It's not the way that we create effective outcomes.
1: I could not agree with any of that more. If we're not treating the whole person, we're leaving part of that person behind, part of their experience. Over here, your doctor says, I don't believe that this one is true, but I promise I'm doing my best to treat this one. You have a real reason to believe, huh, they're not taking this one seriously, Why should I believe you that you're taking the next one seriously? And roll that down into their families, into their support groups, into so many other things. I I don't want to lay the burden at this, uh, just at at the medical field. It's everything. You don't feel as a patient, as a person who is suffering from addiction, that you are being taken seriously. So even though they might be treating one symptom very aggressively or very seriously, you you have a very, very strong suspicion of that. And as you said very large barrier to care. And of course, it creates the sense of hopelessness or misunderstanding.
0: And the other factor that thing goes into this is that as a patient, patients tend to want to make their clinicians feel like they're being engaged, like they're being, quote unquote, good patients. And so there can be this tendency to either then start saying, okay, if they don't acknowledge those symptoms, that they don't want to hear about it, I'll pretend they don't exist. I'll pretend they're better." Or I'll just kind of ignore sharing them because I've been told those aren't important. Some people will challenge me when I start talking about this and I say, well, do, do people really do that? And one of the things that I throw out there is just think of when people go into the dentist. So let's move it out of mental health for a moment to talk about the dentist. And when people are sat down in that chair and they're asked, how's flossing going? Now. For some people if they started flossing a couple of days ago or a week before their appointment so that they can say oh it's going great or whatnot there's a tendency for people to want to say what they think their clinicians want them to hear and that's in any field in any setting so when clinicians start using their platform as a provider to say these are the things I acknowledge and these are the things that I don't what they're doing is they're saying here are the implicit and explicit rules about what I expect and what are important to treatment and what aren't, it starts narrowing it down to say, okay, if you're going to work with me, here are my expectations of you, and this is what you need to do. It changes the dynamic from being, let's focus on the patient's needs to, I'm telling you as a clinician, these are what my needs are, and this is what I expect of you.
1: Dr. Dekach, thank you so much. Where can folks find more information on the web?
0: You can find more information about what we're doing at Affinity at www.affinityempowering.com or else www.affinityreturntowork.com, as well as we have LinkedIn and Twitter accounts out there where there's a lot of information about the stuff that both I'm doing in the field as well as what we're doing as a whole with Affinity.
1: Dr. Takach, thank you so very much. I really, really appreciate that. A big thanks to our listeners. Please follow or subscribe to the show wherever you downloaded this podcast. It's absolutely free. Also, take a moment to review the show. Let other people know why they should be listening. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole, as well as a nationally recognized public speaker who is available to speak at your next event. You can grab a signed copy of my book or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic
0: or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.